This is episode 181 with Running Coach, host of the DNF podcast and associate editor of Trail Runner magazine, Ms. Zoe Rahm. Welcome to the Strength Running Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Fitzgerald, and the episode you're about to listen to features the work of Zoe Rahm, the associate editor of Trail Runner Magazine and an environmental journalist. We're going to learn more about the environmental, public lands, and systemic issues that affect all runners. But before we start, I want to make sure we're all in the right starting corral. On this show, you can expect conversations between me and the thought leaders in the running industry, the coaches, performance psychologists, elite athletes, registered dietitians, authors, and physical therapists who can help you elevate your running to new heights. Because when you better understand the process of improvement, when you recognize knowledge as a competitive advantage, you'll be a wiser and more productive athlete. The Strength Running Ecosystem extends far beyond the podcast, so don't miss our YouTube channel at youtube.com strengthrunning, where we recently hit 41,000 subscribers. Thank you all so much for that milestone, and of course, where it all began, strengthrunning.com. For more than 10 years, we've been helping runners level up their training, race faster, prevent more injuries, and get stronger. You'll find our award-winning blog, our free email courses, and the full library of training programs and coaching services to help you accomplish your biggest running goals. We couldn't have made this episode without our sponsor, Elemental Labs. They make high-sodium electrolytes for athletes to help manage your hydration needs. And check this out. They're doing something awesome for the strength running podcast community here. You can get a free Element sample pack. You just have to cover the cost of shipping, which is only $5 for U.S. customers. Go to drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to see the details and claim your free electrolytes today. Each sample pack includes eight packets of Element, two citrus, which is my personal favorite, two raspberry, two orange, and two unflavored packets. That's drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to sign up. My guest today is Zoe Rahm, the associate editor of Trail Runner Magazine, host of the DNF podcast, and a science, environmental, and adventure journalist. She lives in the mountains of Colorado and spends her time running, climbing, coaching, and turning Trail Runner into an industry-leading magazine tackling the important issues of our day. In this episode, Zoe is helping me learn more about environmental justice and environmental racism and why they're so important for the running community. This month, Trail Runner is publishing its first environmental issue where every story is based on its environmental impact. We're going to learn more about systemic forces that lead to certain groups experiencing more pollution, less access to trails and nature, and what we all stand to gain as a group if all of us fight for justice. We'll also hear more about different policies, ideas, and organizations that we can support to make even more of an impact. Without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Ms. Zoe Rahm. Hey, Zoe, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jason. Well, I am just super excited to chat with you. I think your work is so impactful and so particularly needed right now. Uh, we've got some juicy topics to cover, but uh, maybe we could start with something 
I just learned that I was a little surprised to hear uh, Trail Runner Magazine, where you're the associate editor, is publishing its first ever environmental issue in March. And I was a little surprised by this. The magazine has never done this before. What is going to be included in this issue? Yeah. um, So this is like when I first got hired there, this has always been my dream. Like I'm pretty sure that pitching this idea was actually part of my like job interview coming like coming into this job because I've just been so passionate about using this platform for this specific issue for such a long time. And so my vision for this, um, and I'm hoping that it reflects the vision of the larger community, is that this issue gets into a lot of really deep topics and examines everything through the lens of environmental work, whether that's gear, um, adventure running, nutrition, long form features, photography. My dream was for everything to have to like highlight that environmental angle, right? Because like part of living on earth is that everything you do isn't, is impacted by the environment, right? So we're having, um, you know, as where we would normally have a nutritionist just write about like, you know, whatever nutrition topic, this one examines how to reduce food waste and incorporate more plant-based foods into your diet for a more climate friendly way of eating. Um, all of the, the gear, in this issue focuses more on like how to repair things, how to buy less, how to recycle more, how to shop smarter, how to avoid greenwashing. So like really trying to have like a deeper engagement with environmental issues than just like, oh, this gear is like, you know, is sustainable or whatever. And then like not even define terms at all. Um, all of the long form features focus on different environmental issues. We have Claire Gallagher writing an amazing feature about um, indigenous leadership in the fight for the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I wrote a piece about the importance of collective action, which is like a totally crazy thing to appear in a sports magazine, but is like my favorite topic ever. Um, and then we have another feature specifically about public lands issues. And so it just really takes this holistic look at different ways that just being a trail runner is impacted by the environment and environmental issues. Yeah, there's so much in there. And one thing that I'll comment on is I, I love that the gear section is not going to talk about new environmentally friendly gear and instead is going to talk to you about repairing your gear and you know, actually not buying new stuff because, you know, I actually don't know if my listeners know this, but well before strength running, I worked at a nonprofit outside of Washington, DC, helping individuals and businesses offset their carbon footprint. And so I learned a lot about the carbon footprint of activities and and even about individual products. And it's not always the best idea to take something that may not be an environmentally friendly product and then just replace it right away with an environmentally friendly one because everything has its own carbon footprint. And I think making things last longer is such a great uh, perspective to take on running gear. And honestly, it's not really the, the, the approach that a lot of sports magazines, anyone who does gear reviews really takes because they want you to buy that gear, don't they? Totally. Wonder, Cause did- like, it's so important, like just to be fully transparent, like so much of our profit is like ad revenue from gear companies, but we do work with a lot of gear companies who have a vested interest in their consumers being smarter and informed about the issues. Because I think, you know, a lot of about 11% of global greenhouse emissions come from the apparel industry, broadly speaking, right? And so there is just buying anything, even the most sustainable, fair trade, green piece of gear available, 
does not have zero impact. And we need to get very close to zero impact. And the best way to do that is like whatever gear you have now, just like use the heck out of that. Get really good at sewing. Um, do really boring things like pay very close attention to how you wash your gear and how you take care of it to make it last longer. Um, and I, those are just like some of the biggest things you can do. And I, I know that it's like, probably profit wise, not like the sexiest or the smartest approach to take, but it's like the only honest and authentic argument you can make for like, how to be a, like a good participant in this ecosystem, both as a consumer and a citizen. Yeah. And, and maybe we can talk a little bit about some of those bigger issues. Um, and, and maybe we can start pretty big picture. You've been doing some work recently on issues like environmental justice and environmental racism and it's been about 17 years since my last uh, environmental politics and inequality classes. So uh, can you define environmental justice and environmental racism? How do we think about these two terms? Yeah, I guess just to describe how I think about it, it kind of my argument for this relies on the premise that clean drinking water, clean air, public parks, parks, beaches, trails, biodiversity, open spaces, the things that everyone in the United States should have an equal right to both in principle and legally. Um, nature is supposed to be this like great equalizer whose services are free, universal and accessible to all human beings without discrimination. But in America, society unequally distributes nature's benefits and trails benefits um, as well as the effects of its destruction and decline unequally by race, income, and even age in a lot of places. So environmental justice, which also can be called intersectional environmentalism, is the fair and equitable treatment um, and intentional, meaningful involvement of all peoples, regardless of race, color, nationality, or income when it comes to environmental problems and policies. Basically, it means that people shouldn't have to deal with more pollution or less access to nature just because they belong to a certain race, national origin, or income bracket. So it's about taking and breaking down a system and reimagining it so that it actually addresses inequities. Um, because people who are already disadvantaged by race and socioeconomic status are made poorer because they're unable to profit from the resources that our current system depends on. And they're even made sick by environmental contamination that comes from extracting those same resources. Um, and that kind of gets closer to this thing of environmental racism, which is the conditions under which, whether by conscious design or just institutional negligence, actions and decisions that cause disproportionate exposure of communities of color to environmental hazards and health burdens like air pollution, water pollution, um, any kind of polluting infrastructure, whether that's like a plastic manufacturing facility, oil pipelines, highways, uh, transportation hubs, anything that's going to just make your air or water a little bit worse. Can we maybe put some concrete examples behind some of these issues? Because I think it would help me and and probably some of our listeners, you know, just make this a little bit more tangible. You know, can you give us some good examples of, you know, where environmental justice is is not happening? Yeah, for sure. So black families that make between fifty and $60,000 a year are more likely to live in polluted areas than white families who make less than $10,000 a year. And so what that demonstrates is that it's not just an issue related to um, economic status. It is, in fact, directly tied to race. So income 
income levels alone can't account for the discrepancy there. So Black Americans, on average, are exposed to 56% more pollution than they as a group generate. Latino populations are exposed to 63% more. And white Americans are actually exposed to 17% less pollution than they as a group generate. And so this is something that comes back to like what a lot of people call the golden rule of climate change is that the more you do to cause the problem, the less you're likely to be impacted by it right away, right? So the most vulnerable populations, the people who contribute the least to um, these problems of climate change tend to be negatively impacted by it first and most uh, and, and worst. And that's kind of what we're trying to address here. So, um, you know, this can look things like I remember reading that in 22 states in the U.S., Native Americans are more likely to live next to um, like extraction infrastructure. So oil pads, wells, drilling infrastructure, pipelines, transportation directly related to extraction industries. Um, Just by virtue of where those things are, they impact different populations uh, more or less. And we tend to put those we tend to put extraction infrastructure nearer to vulnerable communities and communities that are underrepresented in places of power. So, yeah. Or like, I mean, you know, and that's kind of like the rural side. So I live in rural Colorado. So my approach to a lot of these things are some, is sometimes colored by that rural perspective. But in cities, it can look things like um, you'll find diesel bus hubs tend to be located in neighborhoods that are predominantly uh low income and or communities of color, um, wastewater treatment facilities, oil refineries, plastic manufacturing, uh, wastewater treatment facilities, those infrastructures tend to be built in um, communities of color. And whenever we try to positively address things around climate change by like planting trees or building parks, we tend to do those things in more affluent white communities. So a lot of the good stuff goes to people who already have, you know, a lot going for them. And we tend to disproportionately burden people who already don't have a lot of power with negative environmental impacts. Yeah, so my sociology major is is coming back to me right now and and I can see how a lot of this is is based on our history. It is systemic, it's structural, it's baked into the the structure of how our society is uh, kind of works. How did that happen? How did we get to where we are now? Why are these things happening? Why are people who, you know, are are maybe already getting the benefits of exposure to nature and and not being exposed to the drawbacks of pollution and you know shipping corridors and things like that how how did that all happen and you know what are what are some of the historical reasons for that yeah that's such a great question i think i want to state right up front that the inequitable distribution of these things is not a result of choice of communities of color or low income communities they don't choose to live near less nature or allow more natural destu- destruction or intentionally relinquish their rights to clean air and clean water these things are in fact like you said due to uh man made structures essentially like policies um legislation things like that and you know looking at us history like since day 1 our history is rooted in the violent dispossession of lands from native americans you know we showed up here and we 
pretty much immediately started forcing people off of their lands um, by means of violence. Um, So, you know, going back to day one, we have a pretty poor track record of this. Um, And then there's, you know, other kind of like... um, equally deep issues like redlining, which was a racist 1930s era policy that actually blocked black families from obtaining home loans. And that remains a major factor in the country's wealth gap today and a major reason that you see um, basically legal segregation occurring. Um, in the pre-civil rights era South, many cities passed laws that mandated re- uh, that mandated residential segregation. So Several state Supreme Courts actually upheld racist policy until it was overturned by Buchanan v. Worley. But essentially, it was legal to not allow black families to live in majority white communities. So we like it has been part of our law. It has been part of our history for many, many years to segregate um, communities of color and to give them less access to desirable infrastructure. Um, I'm from the South. And so that's part of my history. And I'm very interested um, in how, you know, that intersects with various levels of outdoor recreation, access and inequality. But if you look like at the South specifically, there's actually this bananas history of building state parks, public parks, um, you know, before the, you know, before the civil rights era. And then when you know, segregation was made illegal, and they were forced to integrate state parks and public parks, a lot of state and local governments actually just shut those parks down because they were like, we would rather have no public and would rather have no recreation infrastructure than integrated infrastructure. So this is something that is like, fully baked into our culture in a way that's like very harmful to everyone, but low, um, but low income communities and communities of color, especially. Um, And it's not even just overtly racist policy, a lot of it can just be traced to really bad land use planning. And it's not just cities either, it happens in rural areas, like where I live now in rural Colorado. um, You know, these areas are full of commercially valuable resources like oil and coal. But they're also home to a disproportionate amount of indigenous and low income communities. So when those resources like oil, pardon, the southern is coming out, when oil and coal are extracted, um, rural communities don't see much of that profit. But what that profit tends to go towards larger, um, larger corporations. But then rural communities have to deal with a disproportionate level of air and water contamination as a result of that extraction. So the oil and gas boom in the U.S. in the past 20 years has fueled this giant expansion in infrastructure like pipelines, well pads, roads. And these are things that fragment natural areas and wildlife habitats. Um, And then they disproportionately burden um, specific communities. In Colorado, it's Hispanic and Latino communities that have a disproportionate amount of energy development um, activities going on nearby than any other racial group. So it's like looking at the way that history has caused these things to happen on purpose. And if we just ignore that or say that, oh, people choose to live where they live or like, you know, they just want to live in urban areas. Well, sure, you may want to live in an urban area, but no one intentionally chooses to live in a more polluted neighborhood. No one intentionally chooses to live further away from um, outdoor recreation infrastructure. And so we just have to be very mindful when we're assessing our past that we're being honest about the story that we're telling ourselves and not just using it to support this idea of like American exceptionalism or rugged individualism that uh, just isn't borne out in the data. Yeah. And it seems to me that 
for this kind of work where you're, you know, looking critically at our country's history, you are, you know, reimagining how things could be done differently. There's probably quite a few people who are giving you some pushback for that kind of work or criticism. We'll maybe call it that instead of what you probably get is just a lot of trolling (laughs) on some of your work online. What is some of the big criticisms to these ideas that you've just presented? And how do you respond to that? Because I know I'm probably going to get an email or 10 from this podcast episode. Yeah, I guess my response um, is usually show me data that will help me have a better understanding of this complicated issue, right? Like my opinion is based on data and history and facts. Uh, It is also rooted in a deep and abiding empathy for my fellow humans. Uh, But it's once again, this isn't based on like how I feel about issues. This is just me objectively examining history and the data that's available. Um, But you know, yeah, people like inevitably when I write about this stuff, because it is upsetting, like if you can hear these facts and not have some kind of reaction, then that would that would be troubling to me. So like, I understand when people push back, because our history is upsetting, the implications of our history is upsetting, like, clearly, this world is not the thing that we wish it was. And I understand that. And I understand that sadness and that grief that comes with it. But I think we have to sit with that discomfort because that's only a shallow reflection of the discomfort that we've made other people live in for centuries. And I think that leaning into that discomfort and understanding like why you feel vulnerable about it and why you feel hurt (laughs) potentially by this data and information, um, you know, like really trying to understand like why you feel personally attacked when people demonstrate our nation's objectively racist past. Um, And I think that, you know, like also just understanding like a huge portion of my, uh, where I fall on these issues is formed by what I've learned from Black writers, Indigenous writers, um, Latino writers, and climate activists. And one of my favorites is Ibram X. Kendi, right? And he he wrote the book, How to Be Anti-Racist. And that teaches you how to examine things through the lens of racism and anti-racism. Um, and not just like calling people, oh, like you're racist or, oh, you're not racist, but actually trying to look at what the implications and what the actual meaning of different policies and pushback is. Like, I'm not here to call, I'm not here to call people names. I'm not here to tell people they are or are not racist. I'm here to help us all do better at making decisions and informing policy and creating an outdoor economy that is anti-racist. And I think that's kind of the perspective I'm taking on things. And I understand when people are upset that I get very political because like 2020 and 2021 are like hard. It's a hard year, right? Like we all want escape. We all want to get away from these hard issues. But the thing is, is that a lot of people do not have a level of privilege that insulates them from politics. And leaning, once again, leaning into that discomfort and asking ourselves, um, why do I feel comfortable in this space when other people don't can help us just be a bit more empathetic. Um, And for me, I often get told to stay in my lane. And as a trail runner, I'm like, okay, well, if my lane, like if I'm a, you know, I'm an elite competitive trail runner and I write for Trail Runner Magazine, uh, my lane is like, it's this planet and everyone on it. So like, I feel that it is incorrect to not speak out on issues that affect the planet and the people who may or may not want to trail run on it. I I have a high minded uh, opinion on this because 
you know, I, I was a sociology major, but I was also a government major. And I think that politics, when you're when you have a government of, by, and for the people is exactly everyone's lane. Because if yeah. it becomes not your lane, then you're going to find yourself not benefiting from politics and receiving the potential drawbacks of political decisions. And when we think about it, life is political. Whether or not you have health insurance and can go see a physical therapist for that ankle you sprained out on the trail is political. Whether or not you have public lands available to run on or are exposed to more pollution that is going to be negatively uh, impactful for your lung function, that is all political. And so I think it's important that we talk about these issues because if we don't, then you know we're never really going to be able to solve them. Totally. And I often find that the people that um, are pretending to be apolitical or tell me to remain apolitical those are the people that tend to benefit from the status quo. Um, and I, I find that an incredibly cynical stance to take. <laughs> yeah, I would rather speak the truth than try to please everyone by, you know, not getting involved in these really important issues. Yeah, um, and like, again, I get that, like, you know, I'm not the funnest person to have at cocktail parties. And like, you know, when you <laughs> see like my 2000 word feature on environmental racism next to like a kettlebell workout, there is some amount of cognitive dissonance. And that can be weird for people. But also like, what better time and place to talk about these complicated issues. And it's just it every like you said, everything is political, like my ability to talk to you over Wi Fi is absolutely a result of political decisions. And so just like, you know, I think we need to get more comfortable with repoliticizing the public sphere and acknowledging that, you know, sure, like politics, I think in the way that a lot of people think about them as this like ugly horse race kind of thing, like not so fun, but you know, you can't like, you can't, it, that's just, that's how decisions get made. That's how the world works. And you can't not be a part of it. And if you're pretending to not be a part of it, it's probably because your privilege benefits from not having to be a part of it. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, I, I think trail runners are a pretty good group to focus on because when we're talking about these issues, you know, we are very much affected by these issues. Uh, I also recently learned that uh, trail running is the fastest growing outdoor recreation. So trail runners are just becoming more numerous. So, you know, I think we've touched on this in a couple different ways, but why should trail runners care about these different issues? And it sounds like, you know, ultimately environmental justice is like 20 different issues under that big umbrella term. But, you know, no matter the issue, why should we care about this big uh, topic of environmental justice? Or maybe to put it differently, what do we as a group, trail runners, stand to gain by promoting environmental justice? Yeah, I love this because A, I fully believe in our, like as a trail runner and like as just a huge fan of trail running, trail running culture, like everything around it. Um, it's an amazing community and it's an amazing, empathetic, powerful, motivated, active group of people. Like you said, it's the fastest growing outdoor recreation group. It's also, when you look at the data, the outdoor 
sport that people tend to engage in the most frequently. So if you're a trail runner, you tend to trail run more often than someone who identifies as like a rock climber tends to rock climb or a skier tends to ski. So you're repeatedly engaging with these ecosystems and outdoor spaces in a way that I think makes you an ideal land steward and an ideal environmental communicator and an ideal um, ambassador for environmental justice because you're just engaging more deeply um, on that level. And so um, one of the amazing things I think about getting trail runners involved in this issue is that there is like a dual benefit to a lot of these things. For instance, I'm a huge believer in making sure that we set aside particularly public land, set it aside from resource extraction. Um, if you look like 24% of all greenhouse gas emissions in the US come from federal land, public land. Um, actually, like if public land in the US was its own country, it would be the fifth most polluting country. Uh, not great. Uh, but the more that we can set aside that land, not only do we pollute less, but that could like potentially be more trail, which is awesome. So it has this dual benefit of like, we can have this, you know, there is a selfish benefit to it. But it also, you know, keeps our air cleaner, our water cleaner, um, less road building has all these really amazing, great positive benefits for people that we will never meet in our whole lives ever. Um, and then we benefit because we get more land to do the things that we love, more clean air to fuel those pursuits, more clean water, all these things that benefit all people. Um, and so it has this really nice kind of like dual benefit. And I feel like that's a really powerful argument to make for this because while, you know, like lofty ideas around environmental justice and environmental racism may seem abstract to a lot of people who um, whose privilege insulates them from the realities of that day-to-day -day lived experience. Uh, we all love a good trail, right? And like most trail is on public land. So being able to preserve more spaces for recreation has the auxiliary benefit of just more, you know, more water, more air, more land for the rest of us too. And I'm, of course, selfishly thinking about last summer and fall when there were all those fires in California and Colorado, and the wind would bring that smoke right here into Denver, where I live. And there were quite a few days when the air quality index was over 150. I didn't feel comfortable running. And so these issues really bleed into so many other areas. You know, if you're, if you're not protecting your public lands, if you're engaging in too much resource extraction... Um, you know, if you're not managing your forests and, and dealing with the effects of climate change, that is going to affect runners. And it's going to make the environment such that we're going to have to compromise our training. Uh, and, you know, it's like a running coach that's <laughs> like, oh, my goodness, compromise our training. You know, right. all for the no, air quality, like, it just seems like so silly. Like, oh, my goodness, we have to not run today because the AQI is too high. I mean, I had so like, you know, over here in Carbondale, we had the Grizzly Creek fire literally like a few miles from my house and it was raining ash on us for, it was like this apocalyptic scenario for days and days and days. And there were definitely a couple days where it was like, oh great, if I get out before 9am, you know, before the freaking apocalyptic smoke cloud settles over Carbondale, that's great. Um, but like, it should not, like, that is not a normal thing to have ash raining down on your town. And that is, and that is a direct <laughs> that is a direct um, outcome from poor political decisions and a lack of political will and a lack of political leadership. And so, you know, we see all these like, uh, you know, auxiliary outcomes of climate change, like um, a longer and increased fire season, a less stable snowpack and increased avalanches and avalanche deaths. Um, I like 
ice climbing here in Carbondale. And there are ice climbs that haven't come in in like five to seven years, just because, you know, water levels are changing and the ice season is changing because of less stable freeze and thaw cycles. Um, You know, you're seeing things like hard rock getting canceled because of a 400 year avalanche cycle. And that happened two years ago. And we're in the middle of another 400 year avalanche cycle two years later. Uh, That's bananas, right? Like we're just seeing all these things that are a direct result of climate change that are absolutely like on a somewhat superficial level. Like if you come down from the like, yes, like human rights ideas side of things down to the like, dude, you can't run if there is an avalanche on your trail. You cannot run on it if it is on fire and you can't run on it if it's raining ash. And if you want to not experience those things, then you need to get on board with this program. (laughs) I have a friend who was just able to go skiing this past weekend, I think in Vail, uh, for the first time, you know, the, the snow just hasn't really been too substantial up there. And he's like, we finally got a good good run down the mountain. I was like, it's February, man. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, it's been like, since I've lived in Colorado, there's been one year that I've lived here that we haven't been in like a substantial historical level drought. Um, And that was the year of the 400 year avalanche cycle. And right now we're in this crazy thing where we're in the middle of this other bananas avalanche cycle at the same time that we're in a drought. So, you know, or like there is, you know, that fire that was on the front range this summer, there was a fire that was literally put out by a giant snowstorm, which is like a very weird thing. And, you know, it's not with that. I don't want to directly say like that is because of climate change, but we're seeing less stable um, climate patterns, less stable weather cycles. Um, we're just seeing more instability. And if you are a trail runner, you should be heavily invested in increased climatological stability because that is like what our sport depends on um, on a superficial level in terms of having trail that's not burnt to a crisp, covered in avalanche debris, or you know, current or like you know, once things burn, they don't just grow back the same way that they have. Um, particularly if forests have been mismanaged, fire ecology is such that. Once an area burns, it then becomes much more vulnerable to mudslides and flooding and all these other things. So it like dramatically changes the landscape um, in ways that aren't beneficial to that ecology if it's not managed correctly. So, you know, once again, like I'm a very competitive person and I want as many people to feel included in the sport as possible. Like when I'm on the start line of a race. I want the best competitors to be there. And for me, that means really growing the tent and inviting more people into the sport and increasing access to outdoor recreation infrastructure, getting more people on the trails, more people becoming trail runners, more people competing with me and against me and just feeling at home and welcome in this community and on this planet. Sign me up. That sounds great, (laughs) Zoe. (laughs) Um, So what can we do? Uh, you know, I'd love to hear about steps that that we can take, you know, both as individuals, and, and we talked about this a little bit at the very beginning, talking about the uh, environmental issue of Trail Runner Magazine, lots of different things that trail runners can do as individuals, but also higher level, you know, policies, more system systematic approaches to solving these problems. Um, you know, what, what things can we do as individuals? What kind of policies can we support, um, that would help us start to tackle these big issues? Yeah. So, you know, going back to the fact that communities of color are upwards of three times more likely to live in nature deprived states compared to their white counterparts, 
once we acknowledge that that's not a mistake, we can begin to address the reasons that that happens. We need to acknowledge the impacts of systemic racism and um, we can set aside, you know, varying, we can set aside more nature in places that have been historically underserved by conservation efforts. And I really love your framing of looking at this through both an individual perspective and a collective perspective, because both of those things are absolutely integral. And so some things that I'm a huge fan of people doing kind of like on an individual level, um, you know, eating in a way that aligns with your climate values, reducing um, your climate impacts through your diet is a huge one. Driving less is a great one. Um, you know, I think that those are two of the bigger, bigger ones. I buy carbon offsets for races and I reach out to race directors to connect them with like, and this, these are small things, but I'm, I'm a huge believer in doing like all the small things so that I can accumulate like a snowball of stoke to empower me to do like the bigger, scary things that take a little, that are a bit of a heavier lift. But like, I mean, things as small as like recycling your goo packages, fixing your gear, um, you know, taking, yeah, taking better care of your gear, keeping things out of landfills are all super, super important. Um, but one, a, a specific policy that I've become a huge fan of, and this is something that was just recently introduced by the, well, it's been floating around in the scientific community for quite some time, but was signed and was an executive order signed by Joe Biden on the 27th of January, which is the 30 by 30 initiative. And this is something that's backed by research. And it argues that, um, you know, it's critical to fight climate change and protect an estimated 1 million species. And that's the 30 by 30 initiative, uh, which would conserve 30% of U.S. managed land and 30% of U.S. managed water by the year 2030. So we're actually doing pretty decent on the waterfront, like 26% of coastal waters are already um, protected, but we only protect 12% of our land. So to get from where we are today to where we need to be by 2030, we're going to have to save like the land equivalent of two Texases of additional land. Um, and this is something like when you look at the polling data, over three quarters of people who live in Western states like Colorado support this. And then when you get like really granular with that polling data, minority communities like Black, Indigenous and Latino communities, over 80% of those communities support this legislation because once again, they're the communities that are predominantly impacted by the mismanagement of lands and waters. Um, and I think that that's a specific policy that I am a huge, huge fan on, um, particularly because it's evidence-based, right? Like the best policies should be ones that ha are demonstrated to be effective and a good use of time and resources. Um, you know, today was a pretty great day. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but it's been a pretty exciting day. I was actually watching because um, the new Secretary of the Interior, Deb Haaland, was just... Um, her confirmation just passed. Uh, so we now have a pro public lands and an anti extraction department of the interior, which is completely amazing. And as an indigenous woman, she's taken into consideration how extraction and extraction infrastructure and how public lands management impacts minority communities. So I think that's one, you know, like a huge victory. Um, the majority of my work as an environmental journalist happened under the former administration, which was overtly hostile to these things. And the year 2021 has been like such an emotional roller coaster of just being like, oh my God, there's like good news happening. Um, also today, Cori Bush and Tammy Duckworth, along with Ed Markey, introduced the, Inter the Environmental Justice Mapping and Data Collection Act of 2021 on the House floor, which would set aside federal funds to actually collect 
data about environmental justice, which is not something the government has done a great job of historically. And as we know, you can only address problems that you know exist and to what degree. And because we want to use our time and money resources well, um, being able to like actually know what the scale of the problem is and the specific ways that it's playing out in different communities is a very good use of time and monetary resources. So that's another great specific piece of legislation that people should people should pass. Also, <laughs> up for a vote on the House floor today, like right now, uh, the Grand Canyon Protection Act, the Colorado Outdoor Recreation and Economy Act, the CORE Act, uh, which, you know, comes from our home state, which um, sets aside public lands for outdoor recreation in a way that primarily benefits overlooked rural economies. And I think that that is just amazing because I'm such a huge fan of looking at how, um, you know, just because like so often environmental legislation and regulations are touted as being something that kills jobs. And I think that looking at these things through the lens of like, here's how we support rural economies. Here's how we um, better redistribute financial wealth. Here's how we better distribute resources and using outdoor recreation and recreation infrastructure and environmental protections as a way that more equitably um, spreads wealth is an amazing way of doing that, right? And that's one of those things where it's like more trails for us, um, more more economic stability for everyone. I think that's, you know, one of those really great win-wins. Um, the Protecting America's Wilderness Act is up for a vote on the House floor today. Those are all great bills that you can just let your, let your House member know that you are a fan of. Um, another big priority, I think, should be restoring Bears Ears and Grand Escalante Staircase National Monuments with a specific emphasis on co-management with tribes. Um, one of the things that I think cut the deepest about the Trump administration um, scaling back, particularly Bears Ears, is that that is a monument to indigenous knowledge and indigenous sovereignty. And it's not just that that land is amazing and special, even though it is, and it deserves to be protected from extraction, but Indigenous peoples deserve recognition for their contributions to science and culture and our heritage. And that is partially what, if you look at the actual like source text for that monument, that is partially what it is for. It's not just about setting aside land. It's about recognition um, and history and just like about the importance of tribal sovereignty. And I think that that is so, so important. And so putting pressure on uh, your government representatives to restore bear's ears with the focus being on indigenous inclusion is, is huge. Um, we should also restore the Endangered Species Act, which was defanged under President Trump, um, more habitat protections. Trump kind of like did this thing where he made it so that financial considerations could legally be taken into account when you consider like how endangered a species is and how you should protect them. And I do not think that we should assess the value of species and habitats based on their monetary value to humans. And it also narrowed the definition of critical habitat. I think we need to re-expand our definition of critical habitat in a way that's not based on extraction industries and that's like based on science and what actual animals need. So just restoring evidence-based policy um, and then, you know, making sure. So what another thing that the Biden administration is doing quite well is they have this 40 for 40 initiative, which, which sets aside 40% of every federal budget that goes towards climate initiatives to have a focus on environmental justice and go to communities 
um, that are impacted by these issues. And so just making sure holding making sure we're holding that administration accountable for distributing funds in a way that um, better supports communities who've been historically overlooked and marginalized in conservation conversations. Zoe, that was a tour de force of Man, it's I've been like <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll be like over here checking email and then I'll have like C-SPAN up. It's it's an amazing day to have this conversation because like by the time we get off this call, there could be like more or less public land, which is amazing. Um, or like more protections for public land, um, which like is not a feeling I've had in quite a while to like watch things just get better. Um, but I think, you know, a, a big thing, like I, those are pretty blanket, uh, you know, recommendations. I think other things are just making sure that conservation specifically includes communities of color and that we're making intentional efforts to reach out to and meaningfully include those communities. Um, Even if it's something small, like where I live in Colorado, um, there's a large Latino population and all the trail signs are in English. And that sends a very specific message about who that recreation infrastructure is for. I want this infrastructure to be as welcoming to as many people as it can be. And I think by small things like bilingual signage can be so, so huge for letting people know that they are welcome and valued um, outdoors and on trails and on public lands and making sure that the people that manage our public lands look more like the people that we want utilizing our public lands. So making sure um, that you know, the BLM, the Department of the Interior, that those organizations more accurately reflect the people that should be using and benefiting from this like amazing national infrastructure that we could have. Like it's such an amazing resource. So few countries have this amazing thing of public lands that we have going for us, this incredible trust that you just inherit by virtue of being born here. But unfortunately, depending on like what zip code you're born into um, and like who you were born to, your access to those things is going to be limited in ways that it shouldn't be. And, you know, just doing like really, you know, just small things and looking into your specific local area and seeing what the environmental issues are there. Cause they're just going to be different everywhere. Cause like, this is a comp, like, I wish there were better like blanket instructions I could give, but it's a complicated issue and it's hyper local. But I also think that that makes it very impactful for people to just people to just get involved in small ways in their local area um, and get curious about what's going on in their backyard and how this, how these dynamics are playing out in your life and in your backyard and your community and your local government, um, you know, live stream what your planning and zoning commission is up to. Like public meetings are becoming more accessible than ever in the age of the pandemic. Um, let your lawmakers know that you're holding them accountable for making sure that climate funds are distributed equitably um, and make sure that like you're supporting decisions that would put recreation and nature infrastructure in communities that have been historically overlooked. While it's amazing to plant trees in a neighborhood that's already got a lot of trees, we should, this isn't, this is a gross oversimplification of the issue, but we should be dedicating more time and monetary funds to communities who've been historically overlooked by climate improvement initiatives and infrastructure. Yeah, there's, I think, so many amazing things that can be done at the local level. uh, And you've given us a lot of great policies to support at different state and federal levels. Um, Are there certain nonprofits that, you know, let's say if you, you don't have the energy or the time to maybe go to a 
planning meeting or a zoning meeting uh, and live stream it because that's not your idea of a you know a, a, a rock Thursday night Friday night <laughs> right. <laughs> So, I mean, look, what are some of the great organizations that are doing some good work around the country? And, and I think we all know, like some of the big ones, there's the Sierra Club, there's, you know, some of these huge environmental groups. But I was just wondering if you had any insight into whether or not maybe those groups have enough funding and your dollar might go farther if you were to support a smaller, more local or otherwise more niche organization. Yeah, absolutely. This is such an amazing question. And one thing that I, I want to emphasize is that where you put your money is just as important as where you don't put it. Divestment can also be an incredibly powerful tool. And what divestment is, is making sure... So like when you put your money in the bank, it doesn't just sit there, right? Depending on what bank you put it in, they're going to loan it out to different institutions. Some of those institutions may or may not be uh, funding extraction, um, so an amazing, amazing victory that we've seen recently in the climate movement is that divestment had the specific outcome of um, like the recent lease sale at the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. No major bank put a bid in or supported a company that was putting a bid in to buy um, oil leases on the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. So taking money away from people who are doing the extracting means that there will be less extracting. And we can like, as people, we can put pressure on these huge um, corporations to not put money into things that are against our interest as humans, Americans, trail runners, things like that. So just get curious about where your financial institution puts your money. That's your money. Don't let them do things that you don't want to with it. Um, like be a be an empowered consumer and do some research. Um, more and more banks every day are putting transparency statements on their websites about where your money goes and what kind of um, activities it may or may not be funding. So divestment is an amazing um, tool that we can use. But you're totally right. Like there are organizations like the Sierra Club and Green Greenpeace, the World Wildlife Foundation. And while they do great work, um, research shows us that Black, Indigenous, and Latino-led organizations that are working to confront environmental justice ha are underfunded. They receive, like, I remember one study showed that less than 1% of grants distributed by, like, the top 10 major climate grantees went to BIPOC-led organizations. So organizations that are doing this work and that are actually led by the communities um, that the work seeks to serve tend to get the least funding. So just look at who's heading up an organization that you want to donate to. And that can be a really great indication of um, how authentically they may be serving the community they purport to serve. An organization that I'm a huge fan of and full disclosure um, work in an advisory capacity with is Runners for Public Lands, uh, which is based out of Ventura, California. Um, and that's an organization that we're looking at funding um, like basically creating a pool of money that we can distribute to on the ground community initiatives, specifically geared at both public lands protection in a way that serves communities of color. And so that's my uh, shameless plug for runners for public lands. But some other really great organizations that I'm a huge fan of are We Got Next, which uses storytelling to empower environmental advocates and focuses on historically underrepresented communities in the outdoor and environmental space. 
Um, the League of Conservation Voters Education Fund fights for land and water rights and puts environmental issues at the forefront of political action um, and then leverages their funds to um, give to communities of color to speak out against environmental injustices. The League of Conservation Voters also is an incredible resource if you're someone who um, is like, man, I would love to know more about this issue, but it's like totally overwhelming. And like, I don't even know, you know, who, um, you know, I can't name a single city council member. I don't know who my like house rep is like those, like that's a lot for, you know, it's been a tough year. That's a lot to bear in mind. The League of Conservation Voters has a really amazing environmental scorecard for every single politician. It shows you what kinds of vote, like environmental related votes are coming up. Um, in the House and Senate. And it can just be a really clear guide for a voter who wants to be a little more active, but also doesn't want to like dedicate their life to, you know, reading like page 11 of the New York Times or whatever. Um, The Global Green Grants Fund is also an excellent organization that essentially just distributes. uh, It's one of those, it's an environmental grantee organization, but it has an environmental justice angle when it redistributes donated funds. Um, but I think, you know, it's also really important to emphasize that you're going to have the most impact in your local community and just doing a little bit of research and seeing who in your town is already doing an amazing job at, you know, um, at, at environmental justice and serving the issues that are most relevant in your community, whether it's air issues, water issues, whatever it is, like whatever animates you about this topic and makes you feel connected to it, that's a really great place to start investing just a little bit more time and money. And it doesn't have like, you do not have to become an expert on this. Um, I think just like leaning into your natural curiosity and your natural empathy can be an amazing guide for having a more authentic connection to these complicated and scary topics. I think I'm just going to read the articles that you write, Zoe, so that I'm fully in the know on these issues. I'm trying to do a better job of like keeping track of these things in a way that like makes it relevant to the outdoor recreation audience and doesn't like I can be a bit of a policy wonk. um, And that just doesn't speak to everyone. And I don't think we need to have a nation full of policy wonks. I think we need to have a nation full of like just empathetic citizens who are in somewhat amount engaged. Um, and that's kind of like the angle that I'm trying to write for a little bit better. It's just like, hey, the things that the only thing I assume about you is that you like trail and you like trail runners. Like, here are the um, topics that should interest you. And here's how you can act on your values. I love it. And there's been just so much actionable content in this conversation. And and I want to include links to the different organizations you mentioned in the show notes here so people can check it out. Uh, I'm also very much looking forward to the March issue of Trail Runner Magazine. It looks like there's going to be a lot of great stuff in there. Um, You also have a podcast, right, Zoe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am the host and executive producer of the DNF podcast. Awesome. Now, is the DNF podcast an environmental podcast? trail running podcast or no? It's not. And I think that, you know, A, it's really important for me as both like a person and creator to have a lot of different hands and a lot of different pies. Um, I personally feel a lot more fulfilled when I am deeply engaged on a number of issues rather than all in on just one issue. Um, And DNF, I think is just like, it's my, it's my pet project. And it just looks into, um, it examines failure in life and running through a variety of different angles, but um, mostly just is a storytelling podcast that's quirky and a little bit literary and has a little bit of fun sound editing. And it's just a way for people that I really like people that I really look up to, to talk about 
how failure helped them grow in life and running. I love it. I love talking about things that most people don't like to talk to, like all the policy wonk stuff that you were going on about. I'm like, oh, yes, my government degree is like coming into hand, good use now. And then also uh, just talking about failure and, and how failure isn't always a bad thing, how it can be really great, how you can learn from it, how it makes you into who you are today. So uh, you're, you're doing some amazing work on some issues that are just really interesting, that are super important right now. Uh, besides your podcast, DNF, and your writing at Trail Runner Magazine, um, where else can we follow your work and connect with you? Yeah, so um, Trail Runner is home to the majority of my work, but I'm also on Twitter as Zoe H. Rome, mostly just tweeting about the environment and or different poets. And I'm on Instagram as carrot underscore flowers underscore Z. Um, And I put a lot of environmental and shorter writing there. Writing that would be totally inappropriate for trail runner tends to go there. Um, But (laughs) yeah, I'm also a professional um, trail running and endurance coach. And, you know, I've been listening to this podcast for a long time and learned a lot and tend to share it with my athletes because it's an amazing, uh, just like warehouse of conversation and wide ranging ideas. And I really love that about this. Oh, well, thank you, Zoe. I really appreciate that. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was so amazing to hear from you and connect with you today. Uh, I hope that our listeners are able to connect with you online somewhere. And I think we're all looking forward to that March issue. Yeah. Well, thanks so much, Jason. I appreciate it. Thank you, Zoe. And there we have it. I learned so much from Zoe. And if you're like me, if you want to keep running on our beautiful lands for decades to come to shrink our wildfire season, which is especially tough here in Colorado, and just improve the air quality so we can keep doing what we love, I encourage you to support Zoe's work. Trail Runner Magazine's March issue is its first full environmental issue that you can purchase. You can learn more about Zoe at her website, zoerom.com. Or check out her podcast, The DNF Podcast. Finally, I want to hook you up with some free electrolytes. Our sponsor, Elemental Labs, is offering a free sample pack with four flavors and eight different electrolyte packets. Go to drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning, and you only have to pay for shipping. Elemental Labs makes electrolytes for athletes and also for low-carb folks that has no sugar, no artificial ingredients or colors, and I'm partial to the citrus flavor, which I honestly can't get enough of. It's tasty and delicious and something I really enjoy when I do any running more than about 45 minutes. And there's now mounting evidence that higher recommended sodium intake levels from the FDA are not actually that harmful, especially for athletes. Now, of course, ask your doctor if you're worried, but for those athletes running five plus days a week, training for longer events or outside in the heat, an electrolyte replacement makes a lot of sense, especially if you have a high sweat rate or if your sweat has a high concentration of sodium. And I'm very encouraged by the fact that Navy SEAL teams, Olympic teams, and other pro athletes have started using elemental electrolyte supplements to improve their performance. Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash strengthrunning to try their sample pack and get your hydration optimized for the upcoming spring season. That's our show today, guys. Thank you so much for subscribing to the podcast. And as always, if there's anything I can do for you, if you have any questions for me, feel free to reach out anytime at support at strengthrunning.com. 
Until next time, 